0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. I will uh, read Isaiah 61, 1-11, through 11, and after both of these readings, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Out of reverence for God's word, if you'd please respond by saying thanks be to God. The Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me. that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your ploughmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God, You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their lands they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading. If you want to turn me to John, John 20. also went in, him, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he might rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And when she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brother, brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The door being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Christ is risen.
1: Let's pray. Father, I pray now that by your spirit you would take up your word and you would wield it to produce faith. God, that every person in this room would hear these words, would hear the words of John and believe them. It would bank their whole life on them. It would find in these words hope, would find in these words mercy, would find in these words repentance, would find in these words life from the dead. And God, that we would leave here new. So come and do what I can't do, what my words can't do, what my clever illustrations can't do. Um, Come and God um, wield the word of John to produce life. In your name we pray. Amen. All manner of authors have noted that if what we confess and sing isn't true today, if what we confess about the resurrection of Jesus is not true, and Christianity is a failure. It's stupid. We're all wasting our times this morning. We're all wasting time singing these songs, confessing crazy things into the air. But if it is true, if Christ really did come out of the grave, if he was raised from the dead, if the account that John gives us here in John chapter 20, if it actually took place, which is at the root of what Christians confess, it's why we sing, it's ultimately why we live, then there is nothing else to quote. Um, one of the greatest characters of all of literature, the misfit, um, from A Good Man is Hard to Find, then there's nothing else to do but get rid of everything and follow him. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, um, then we must follow Him, that we must know Him. If it's not true, nothing else matters. But if it is true, well, nothing else matters. So this morning we stick with John, as John is our guide this particular weekend. We've spent some time with Matthew, we've spent some time with Mark. Next week we'll turn to Luke, pay attention to Luke. But today we listen to John, and John um, gives us in his account of the resurrection of Jesus a particular emphasis, two particular emphases um, that we're going to be looking at closely today, and one of them is surprising, um, in in that oftentimes we approach the resurrection of Jesus um, fundamentally as a kind of proof that Jesus is God, um, or proof that uh, death has been defeated, both of those things being true, by the way. One of the interesting things as we examine um, the way that the resurrection is used in the testimony of the early disciples, particularly as you weave through the book of Acts, as you look at Paul's letters, um, when, when the resurrection of Jesus is, is made reference to, um, the, the fundamental thing that is asserted by the disciples is that this reveals the authority and the power of Jesus. In other words, when they looked at the resurrection, what they saw is a testimony to the sovereign rule of Jesus over the universe. As a result of that rule, they saw the conquering of death. As a result of that rule, they saw um, a reversal of the rule of death in our world. But interestingly, the most fundamental thing confessed over and over again in the book of Acts, I'm thinking here in particular of Paul in Athens. I'm thinking of Paul pretty much everywhere he went. when he confessed that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead, he asserted right alongside that, that therefore, because he was raised from the dead, he will come as judge, as ruler, as king. John lays this out for us rather beautifully, along with one other thing that we're going to take up. But I I want to dive a little bit more into the the framework of John. We we spent a little bit of time on Friday night discussing Um, How does John set up his gospel? We talked about John um, building a lot of themes in his gospel around the festival days um, of the Jewish feasts, um, and so I'm um, building, uh, building his um, testimony to who Jesus is and the work of Jesus uh, around um, the work of God throughout the history of Israel to redeem them, to, to forgive them, to supply their every need, and most of all, to be with them, to, to, to lead them and guide them, not from afar, but, but that his presence was absolutely and completely with them. But we also saw that one of the distinctions between John's gospel and Matthew's gospel is Matthew is highly concerned to tell the Jews again and again and again that here in Jesus the promises given to you have been fulfilled. He he wants to take the story of Israel um, and lay on top of it the story of Jesus to show them that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has happened to them in their history. John, while making reference to that story, has kind of a larger scope in mind as he describes for us the mission and the work of Jesus. He intends for for us to see not merely the story of the Jews, but the story of the whole world. He wants to unfold for us from the very, very beginning that the story of Jesus coming and the whole of his ministry it is not merely about um, fulfilling particular promises made to the Jews, but it is, in fact, about the recreation of the entire world. And so we saw, that, as we saw on Friday night, that he opens his gospel um, with a quotation from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... The idea being that Jesus Christ has come. He's the word that was spoken by the Father from the very beginning. The word by which the whole world was created. And this word has now been spoken in the coming of Jesus such that the world now is being remade. One more little thing that's actually extremely relevant to our text today. Um, as John is kind of building this gospel, this account of God's recreation of humanity and recreation of the world, he builds his gospel around the seven days of creation. And so in God, John's gospel, we have seven signs, seven signs that, um, that, that, that reveal to us that what God is doing in Christ is remaking and restoring the world. He is bringing about a new creation and a new humanity. You'll remember... Um, as we looked at Jesus before Pilate, as Jesus is beaten, as a, a makeshift royal robe is thrown around his shoulders, a crown of vanity, a crown of fruitlessness, a crown of God's curse is placed upon his head. Um, we, we we know that from this text that this was the sixth day of the week, In the six days of creation On the sixth day, mankind is created. And on the sixth day of John's gospel, Jesus is presented, presented with a royal robe, presented with a crown of futility, and declared, behold the man. Behold Adam. Behold where mankind finds itself. The unfolding of new creation is at the heart of what John is up to in his gospel. And so I want to take now two themes that John develops here in chapter 20. And I want to ask the question this morning What is the meaning of the resurrection? Why does it matter? Perhaps you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe the gospel is true. Got dragged here by a parent, maybe, dragged here or tricked here by a friend, told that this would be barbecue. There is barbecue and you don't know what this is all about. Well, you have the next 20 minutes, or well, I'll be honest, 25 or 30 minutes, um, <laughs> to, to not waste your morning. To take for a moment and consider the question, what's the big deal? What's Easter all about? What's the resurrection of Jesus all about? Why do these crazy people come in a room and sing songs and yell and, and, and shout and read a really old book and base their lives on it? So I would implore you if you're here today and, and you're here not necessarily because you're a Christian but because you're doing someone a favor um, or, or you're being nice to, to take for a moment and, and consider this question. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean? Does it matter? I, I would hold out to you there's not a more important question in the universe. There's not a more important question for your life. Is it true? And what does it mean? So first, as we consider John chapter 20 and allow John to answer this question for us, I want you to take note of three things. First, in verse 1 and verse 19. Now on the first day of the week, verse 19, now on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, and an interesting thing to throw in there as well, um, if you go down to verse 26, the second story, it happens a week later, it says eight days later. Um, so we have three references here now to um, a, a, a first day, some sort of first day of the week. Um, John, um, I, I, would, I would remind you, John is not like Luke. Um, Luke likes to include lots of details. He likes to tell you the time, the place, what was going on, what was happening. He includes details all over the place throughout Luke's gospel. John doesn't. John is is far more concerned with images. He wants you to see things. He wants you to behold things. And so when he tells you what day of the week it is, he's not doing it just so you can make sure you put it in the right journal entry. He's not primarily concerned with a timeline. He's primarily concerned with, with the theological significance of what day this is. It helps fill in the picture of what he's trying to paint for you. And so when John gives us details like a time and a place, again, he's not doing it merely kind of for historical posterity. He's doing it because he wants to fill in the image of what he's painting for us. And so John tells us it's the first day of the week. It's the first day of a new week. So that's the first detail I want to hold out to you I'm just gonna fill, out, fill in this image. The second thing, look at verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? This is Mary, weeping outside the tomb because she doesn't know where Jesus is. And she says to, he says to her, whom are you seeking? Now catch this, this is amazing. Like seriously. Supposing him to be You see it. The what? The gardener. So we have first day of the week. We're in a garden. Mary can't find Jesus anywhere, but who does she find? A gardener in the garden on the first day of the week. You still don't see it. So let me help you. So, so well, let me give you the third one. Aha, verse 22. and when, This is Jesus now in the upper room speaking to his disciples. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Aha. Breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So we have the first day of the week. We have a garden. We have a gardener in the garden, and we have the breath of life given to his people. The image you're supposed to see at the root of the resurrection of Jesus is here is mankind made new. Here is a new Adam in a new garden. Here's a new Adam in a new garden filled with the very Spirit of God and bestowing that Spirit on the people of God. The whole centerpiece of what John is doing in John 20 as he tells us about the resurrection of Jesus is to say um, the last time we saw Jesus in John 19, behold the man beaten, bruised presuming himself to be king but that kingship only led to death. But here, here is mankind made new. Here is mankind filled with the spirit of God. Here is mankind raised from the dead. Here is a new garden a new place of communion with God The meaning of the resurrection of Jesus is that God is making all things new. He's renewing and restoring and making the world new again. And it is a newness born of the spirit right now, born of faith right now, unfolding slowly, but surely in all the world. It is after all a garden. It is a newness that is a renewal, um, and so um, the illustration I like to use for this as the Bible describes the renewal of all things the the text from Isaiah, um, which John leans heavily on the on, on The prophecy of Isaiah to describe for us the work of Jesus and what Jesus is accomplishing. Um, As Isaiah describes what God has promised to do and has now begun to do um, in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is the renewal of all things, the renewal of the world. Um, Now, it's really, really important that we understand how that renewal works. Well, what's actually happening? It's not merely the promise that all things will be made new eventually and someday. It is the actual guarantee, the announcement that that has begun now in the resurrection of Jesus and by the work of the Spirit. So oftentimes as Christians, we tend to think of um, heaven or the renewal of the world or new creation as like a Hail Mary pass. Like the Jesus team is just getting destroyed for like three quarters and 14 minutes. Then, in the last minute of the game, here comes Jesus, all-star quarterback, great arm. He shows up at the scene, one minute left, and he throws the ball, and it's caught, probably by, I don't know, Turns on, you know, maybe it's Peter. Maybe. Anyway, anyway. I was going to make a joke there, which is not going to go well, so I just stopped. Um, <laughs> and so the person catches the ball in the end zone. Thought we were getting beat for thousands of years. But now, at the last moment, Jesus throws a Hail Mary pass. The sky cracks open, and we win. Woo! It's not the picture laid out for us in Scripture of how this thing goes. How this thing goes is slowly and steadily Jesus wins. Slowly and steadily through the work of His Spirit through a people who aren't righteous on their own, um, who aren't kind of conquering through their own power, but by by clinging to the hope of the cross, but by trusting and confessing and singing about the resurrection of Jesus, but by reliance on the Holy Spirit um, and, and submission to the word of God, as that works itself into every single nook and cranny and corner of our lives, the world is slowly, increasingly transformed. It is renewed. Other illustration. When you think of this renewal, you should not think of it as so for instance, I used to have I used to have a rear rear wheel drive Toyota forerunner. Bought that while living in Colorado. That was stupid for all of you over here. It's a dumb move. It was a good price, so I bought this rear-wheel drive Forerunner, and then years later decided didn't want a rear-wheel drive Forerunner, and so we bought a new, sort of new, new to us Forerunner. It was four-wheel drive, completely different car. Like it wasn't the same car. You know, like this one was green. It's gross. It's old. Who knows what had been done in that car. This is a bad car, troubling car. That car goes away. We get a new car, brand new car, new seats, new everything. There's no parts of the old car left in the new car. Oftentimes, we think about new creation or the work that God is doing in us and in the world as though we went from the old green rear-wheel drive Forerunner to the now new gray four-wheel drive Forerunner. That's not. Um, the, the, the words that are used to describe the work that God is doing and has accomplished and has begun to do in Jesus Christ. It's not um, as though he's snapping his finger and now um, and now Jenny is gone and now we have a new version of Jenny. Like a new Jenny. Jenny 2.0. The old Jenny has been thrown away and a new Jenny has come. It's not the story. It would be very sad for me if the old Jenny was gone. I love the old Jenny. So... Well how does this actually work? well how this actually works is God is slowly remaking, renewing, restoring everything from the ground up, but it is still this world it is still you and your life and your body. God is remaking and restoring everything by the power of his spirit um but by, by the, uh, the the rule and the reign of jesus he's accomplishing it as the spirit applies um the work of on the work of the word as he applies our baptism, raising us from the dead and making us new again. A work that will one day be absolutely completed when death is put away forever. You are even now becoming new. If Christ is raised from the dead, Paul says, then he shouts, (laughs) In, in Greek it's literally an exclamation, new creation. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then you and I are even now being made new and whole. We are not what we once were. We are not what we will one day be. But God, even now by the Spirit, is applying the work of Jesus to us, transforming us, renewing us, restoring us, teaching us to love new things and to hate old things. Teaching us to trust and to cling to the very word of God. To hate sin. To love what is true. To love what is beautiful. To love what is good. To love the brothers and sisters. To love our neighbors. But most of all, to love Christ with everything that we are. So the first image that John lays out for us is the image that all things are in fact being made new. A new creation has dawned. A new world has begun. A new humanity is in Jesus being formed even now, even this morning, even in this room. Second image, theme, built on a handful of images. Um, the first one I'm so excited about this one. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So that's... Hold on to that for a minute. Be patient. Come back to it. It's going to blow your mind. Just a second. Second image. Uh, Jump with me up to verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths. Interesting. Linen. Where else do you find linen? Who wears linen? Does anybody know? I don't wear linen. I lived in Florida, I might. But I don't wear linen here in Colorado. So who wears linen? It's an important question. And what's also important to note is the face cloth, the the cloth that covers over kind of the death mask, is not with the linen cloth. So you have the linen cloths sitting on the slab where Jesus' body had been laid. Um, um, You also have on that same slab two angels, one at the foot and one at the head. (laughs) This is so cool. Okay. So here's the first image. You have... Linen cloths, you know who else wears linen cloths? You know. The high priest wears linen cloths. Do you know when he wears and where he wears linen cloths? He wears them in the Holy of Holies. When he comes in to stand on behalf of God's people in the very holiest place on earth. The Holy of Holies the footstool, the very throne room of God. So the high priest would stand in the presence of God in the most holy place, wearing linen clothes. But you know what else is in the Holy of Holies? Two angels. Two angels over the slabs of God's law. One at the head and one at the feet. Here's here's the thing. It, it, it's it's dangerous to celebrate Easter. Because you can begin to think as we begin to celebrate and shout and sing and say, um, death has been defeated. Um, The reality is we say that, we shout that, we sing that by faith as we should. But you will walk out of this room and if you open Twitter, you open Apple News, you open the Wall Street Journal, you open anything and you will find that we are surrounded by death. And so the temptation is to walk out of here um, with kind of a dissonance in your brain. On the one hand saying, "Yeah, um, Amen, we shouted, we sang, we ate barbecue, we had a lot of fun this morning. I'm um, declaring that Jesus defeated death. But in reality, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Because death is everywhere still. But, but here's how John accounts for this. And it is glorious Because the shocking thing about John chapter 20 and these images um, is that the, the thing that's happened is the Holy of Holies has moved from the temple. It's moved from some holy building where only clean people could go. And it's been moved as far away from that as humanly possible. It's been moved into the grave. You see, the testimony of Easter is that Christ has been, risen, has, has been raised from the dead. Um, yes, it is absolutely the proclamation that death itself has been conquered. But it's not that death has gone away. It is instead the confession, the belief that Christ reigns even in death, that Christ reigns even over death, that Christ rules, is sovereign, is Lord over everything, even in the tomb. See, John would have us open our eyes and with clear eyes see that the throne of Jesus Christ does not merely mean that death one day will be put away forever, although it means that. It means that right now, and for all of history, Christians can face death with hope, with faith, that even this is not wasted, even this is not outside of the purview, the rule, the reign of King Jesus. For centuries, Christians would gather at the tombs of Christians to pray, to share the Eucharist, to confess together in the face of death, in the midst of death, in the middle of graveyards, that even here God reigns. So that when you face your darkest moments, when you face chaos, when you stand next to deathbeds, confession of those who belong to Christ is even here Christ is Lord even over this Christ is Lord one other image that's always troubled me I think for 43 years it's troubled me and I would go I'm going to figure this out think figure it out look with me at verse, oh dear! Ah, there it is, verse seventeen. She, Mary, thinks it's the gardener. He says her name. Isn't that precious? He says her name, and she can see. He says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, "Rabboni," which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, "This is the part that's bothered me." Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Um, the, the, uh, the other synoptics use, have this same exact um, moment, this moment where it's, it's worded a little bit differently than them. It says, do not keep touching me. Do not keep clinging on to me. Um, the, the, but the, it's this image like, Jesus has just been raised from the dead. Here's Mary. Uh, Mary sees Jesus. She falls at his feet. She's clinging to him. And Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. Stop. And I never knew on earth. Why, why does it say that? And in this connection, see it. You're going to see it. Because John wants you to see it. Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. The reason why Jesus doesn't want Mary to cling to him, to hold him, is because if she keeps holding on to him, it would lead to a pretty weighty misunderstanding about the purpose of his resurrection. You see, the purpose of the resurrection of Jesus is not merely that that Mary or the disciples or us would be somehow comforted by Jesus' physical presence. Please hear that. And the million implications from there. The goal of the resurrection wasn't your comfort. It wasn't Mary's comfort. It wasn't the disciples' comfort. The goal of the resurrection was that Jesus would ascend to the Father to rule. The goal or the outcome of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ would be seated at the right hand of of power almighty and that he would reign forever and ever and ever. Um, John loves this theme. As he moves to the book of Revelation, he tells us in explicit and glorious detail what this looks like. But what he wants us to see right here, what, what Jesus confronts Mary with, is I'm not here merely so that you can touch me, or you can hold on to me, or you can be comforted by my mere presence. No, I have been raised from the dead to rule to reign forever and ever and ever. And here, it brings us all the way back to the theme of the early church's preaching, what I believe should be a theme of our preaching, our testimony, our belief in God, is that the goal, um, the, the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he is Lord. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord over all. He was raised that he might be king. He was raised that he might be king even over death itself. He is the Lord. The last thing I want to call us to see as we close is Thomas. I think Thomas is misunderstood. Thomas is kind of looked down upon and I think it's really unfair because the the reality is is that like nobody believes through the whole whole chapter 20 of John, right? Like the women go, they see the empty tomb, they go tell the disciples, hey, the tomb is empty. But do they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? No, they believe that simply someone came and stole the body. Um, Well, the men don't even believe the women. They got to run and go see themselves. So they run, they see that the tomb is empty. Do they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? No, it's it's interesting. It says, um, they looked and believed. What did they believe? They didn't believe that he must rise from the dead. So in the next verse, it says, they didn't yet understand that he must rise from the dead. So what exactly did they believe? I think they believed the testimony of Mary, that the body's gone. So Mary comes and says, hey, the body's gone. So they run to the tomb, John wants everyone to know that he's faster than Peter. Peter was not as athletic. But Peter goes in first. It's kind of how our kids, when we would race um, home, we would run. I would get to the door first because I'm a far better athlete. That was really mean, Jenny. That laugh. But then the kids would get there and they'd run inside. It beat me inside the door, so that's kind of Peter um just joking, I'm not a better athlete all that, but uh, G, John gets there first once everybody know that Peter races in, sees an empty tomb, where do they believe they believe oh, Mary wasn't lying to us, the body is gone, and Mary stands weeping outside of the tomb see she, she sees two angels, she still doesn't believe. Where is he? They <laughs> tell him. He's not here anymore. Then she sees Jesus. She sees Jesus. And she doesn't believe. She thinks he's a gardener. She accuses Jesus of stealing Jesus' own body, which I guess is technically true. Then you get to Thomas, or you get to the disciples. They're locked away in a room, terrified. So Jesus comes and appears to them. Then they rejoice. They're filled with joy. They've seen the Lord. But then you have Thomas, Thomas who wasn't there. So now Thomas has the testimony of Mary, who's spoken to Jesus. He has the testimony of all the other disciples who've spoken to Jesus. And what does Thomas say? Unless I touch his hands and feel his side, I will never believe. Now, oftentimes Thomas gets a hard time as if, as if the whole chapter isn't about a series of people not believing from the testimony about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which brings us to one of the major themes of, of, of John chapter 20. Jesus in his mercy and his kindness comes and appears to Thomas and speaks to Thomas and gives Thomas what Thomas has asked for. But he says this, and this is a word I believe for us, for all of us. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God, which is by the way, which is why I don't think Thomas is meant to be looked down upon in this text. Um, it, it, rather, he's supposed to be a, a model for us. Um, <coughs> Thomas says, my Lord and my God, which is the first full confession the identity of Jesus in the gospel of John. Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John turning to us now after he's told us this story says to us, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name, that Jesus was raised from the dead. That Jesus went to the cross to atone for our sins. He was raised from the dead on the third day. But raised to rule and to reign over all things. But raised as the first fruits, the beginning, the down payment of the beginning of all of creation. Being made new and a whole new humanity, transformed and renewed humanity to fill that world, to inherit that world, to build in that world, to pursue glory and goodness and and love in that world. Jesus Christ was raised that we might confess and say, My Lord and my God. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Is risen Let's pray and prepare for communion. And so Father, I pray now that by your spirit that you would call anyone here who does not know you, who has not believed in Jesus now to believe, to repent of their sins, to turn away of the rebellion against you, to turn away from unbelief and to confess with their mouth and to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, that you would do the supernatural and give them a heart of flesh to believe and to confess that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Father, for all of us, I pray, O oh God, that we would confess, that we would celebrate, that we would rejoice and believe. Ha- having not seen in the flesh, like the disciples, or like Mary, or like Thomas, I pray, God, that we would receive the blessing of confessing and believing and singing and eating that Jesus. Christ is Lord, that he has borne our sins on the cross, that we are declared righteous on account of his righteousness, and that we are promised, and even um, what has begun now by the Spirit is our resurrection from the dead, that we might inherit all of this earth. So God, may we believe these things, may we sing of these things, may we eat in the light of these things, and God, may we do everything in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.